Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. So I'm sick of being a side Indian character. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. It's like it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to Race Card. I'm your host, Ahmed Yusuf, and joining me in studio today, we've got co-host Amina Ziad. Hey, everybody. And before we begin, we'll be doing an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet and pay respects to their elders both past, present, and future. This land was never ceded and the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. Uh, we have Manel Yunus, writer and poet in studio today, to talk about her poetry, her writing, growing up in Australia and so much more. So stick around for that. As well as um, today we look at what we have in the bin this week. We've got a lot. It's pretty full. I don't know. I think we're going to have to take it outside now. Um, and... At the end of the show, we'll be playing an interview I had recently on Triple R on Namilla Benson's show, White Noise. So uh, hopefully you enjoy that as well. What's going on, people? This is Akala, and right now you're listening to The Race Card. Big up. And today we have poet, writer, and sometimes television personality, Manal Yunus, on the podcast. We're going to be talking to her all about her poetry writing, inspiration, and, you know, generally growing up in Australia. Hey, Renal. Hello, how are you? And to do this with me, obviously, I've got Amina and Jasprit. Hi. Hi, guys. <laughs> Talk to me about your poetry. Oh, poetry. Um, well, I guess I've been writing for as long as I can remember, but uh, it, was about, it was about five years ago that I performed for the first time. And actually, the first time that I did um, it was, I kind of, like, I was always shaking, but then I had this one big show when I got into the slam finals and I freaked out and I sat back down and I cried for the rest of, like, everybody else's performances and I was like, I'm never doing this again. So I didn't perform again for two years. And then, yeah, when I got started again in 2013, the only reason I actually did the slam the second time, because I'm not a big fan of competition, was to prove to myself that I could. And so since then, I got into finals, like, in that year, um, and since then, I haven't actually participated in the slam. I've just been doing more, um, yeah, kind of performing in my in my own right and also a lot more kind of incorporating that into the grassroots kind of community work that I, that I, that I like to do or that I do. So people often ask, where do you want to take your art or your poetry? But I want to flip that question a little bit. So where does your poetry take you? My poetry takes me to a place where I can be self-critical and really kind of reflect back on the things that I'm thinking and feeling and decide if, oh, is that actually what I'm thinking and feeling? Am I, um, is that really my opinion? Is that really where I'm at? So I guess, yeah, it, it, it takes me to a place where I can, I can be me and observe me and decide what I want to be. What's that like? Uh, it can be, 
can be painful at times because it, it requires, for me anyway, it requires me to be very honest with myself. Um, and sometimes, you know, the things that, that come out of your mind or come out of your mouth, they're not things that you, you thought you thought or felt. So <laughs> it, can, it can be confronting at times, but it's also very important to do, I think. So. Uh, when you talk, you're talking about confronting, it being confronting, I guess, what do you mean by that? I guess sometimes I write things that are very emotional. And then, you know, in the time that I'm kind of looking at how I want to word it, I'm just like, but is that really what I mean? And, you know, you kind of find different ways to say things and you really observe your thinking patterns, I guess. So, yeah, that's what I mean in that sense. But it's very liberating as well because there are a lot of things that you can say in poetry that you may not be able to say in public spaces on other platforms um, and that you may not be able to say in in a lot of your relationships with people, you know, then it may not be the type of conversation you can have, but through poetry, you can, you can create this thing that then once you do it on a stage, once you perform it, it connects with a random person in the crowd so that you don't know. Poetry has helped you express yourself? Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's my choice of self-expression. How? Bro, why are you asking all these hard questions? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. How has it helped me to express myself? I think because, well, I've, one of the things I always say is that storytelling is one of the most powerful things. So being able to put your experiences into stories in a, in a way that you can share them, I mean, that's expression. Um, and for me, I, I like, I guess, coherent forms of self-expression where um, I really feel like the people across from me are understanding what I'm saying. Um, and so poetry gives me a space to be able to do that, but to do it artistically as well. So, you know, you're not just ranting and giving lectures to people, but you're asking them to join you on that journey. And speaking of storytelling, do you ever revisit your poetry or revise it? You know, is there such thing as a finished piece to you? I've learned that there needs to be. So it, it, there was a while where that wasn't the case. Like I was editing a piece like two years later. But now I've, I've learned to really be content with something um, for what it was in the time that I wrote it and what it meant to me in that time. So there are a lot of things, even um, there are a lot of things that I've published that you know, looking back at it after two years, I'm just like, yo, I don't feel that way anymore. Like, is that really, do I really want that to be out there for people to hear? But I know that in that time, in that space, it was very real and it's going to connect with people who are also in that time and that space. So it's important to leave it as it was, to not tamper with a future, to not let a future me tamper with what it was. Right. So, okay, this is like a far stretch, but have you ever written something, performed it, published it, and then later on regretted it? I mean, is that something that happens? It, it could be. For me personally, no. Like I've almost regretted things, but then it's really back to that kind of centering yourself and realizing that, nah, if I wrote it, it means that it was a part of me. And if it's out there, it means that that's a decision that I made at that time and mm -hmm. it was necessary. And so it's, it's about that acceptance about what's happened already. So I haven't, I haven't really regretted anything, but there have been times when I've definitely second guessed myself, but that's about it. How did you get into poetry? This particular type of poetry was... Just, just writing in general. Why would you be drawn to, I guess, being so intimate about yourself um, in such a public forum? I think... I think there's two questions in that. 
So with writing itself, I just because that was the form of self-expression that I felt was best, like that I could use from when I was younger. So I was always writing stories in different ways. When I was wanting to be a journalist, it was because I wanted to tell stories, that kind of thing. For the more personal stuff, the more reflective stuff and, and putting that out there, I think that I decided to start doing that because I felt that it was necessary. Like I could see how important it was for for just for us to kind of share parts of ourselves with people for better understanding, to connect with people. It's a really important way to connect with people. And I think that's really what's lacking um, in just everywhere around me. I could see that that's what was lacking. Like people weren't being open in these, uh, being open. So I needed, I felt like I needed to create spaces where people could be open. And the first, the best way to do that is to, to be open yourself. What, what's it like to be on national television, on, on one of the biggest shows on in Australia, like Q&A? To be honest, it wasn't as nerve-wracking as I thought it would be. Before I went up, I was freaking out. I was like, what do I need to prepare? I was trying to read over everything. And um, then when I actually got to it, it was just like being on any other panel. The audience was there. The space is built really well, so you don't necessarily feel like you're on public television. So I forgot it was TV. I just, I kind of just acted as though I was any, on any other panel. And I think it, it worked out quite well. Um, and often I say, like, when I was looking back at the video, I just looked too relaxed. Like, I noticed I was swinging on my chair and things like that. <laughs> and I was like, maybe maybe that's not the look you wanted to go for. But, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too bad at all. And I think for me, like, it made, it made those kinds of spaces seem so much more real. And it made me more determined to make them accessible to more people because I was like, this is not as frightening as it's made out to be. Do you ever worry that you're representing a number of people if you when when you do such a high profile thing like Q and A, like that idea of representation and then yeah. having to be that? Definitely, um, I definitely worry about that at times, and I think that a big thing for me over this past year or so is really coming to terms with the fact that like if I am just being myself, there are going to be a number of people that feel represented by that, and there are going to be a lot that don't. But one thing that we really have to also push is that that boundary that that is placed on us where we feel that we have to represent everybody else, you know. And I find that it's we just if we if we are ourselves, we're definitely representing a group of people. And there are some people that are happy that we're there and there are always going to be some people who are not. So speaking with, you know, speaking about rather. Um, TV representation, um, your poetry and art more generally is seen as subjectively interpreted um, so it's open to interpretation but what would you like and what would you hope people would take away from your work and your representation? Do you have an ideal that you have in mind? Yeah, I think ideally people will listen to my work and and feel empowered I think that's the main thing that I go for in most of my pieces, I think that's evident. You know, even when I'm talking about a really, a really kind of rough situation, even if it's not a positive ending at the end, that's supposed to inspire you. The fact that you feel like somebody else gets where you're at at that point in your life, I, for me, that's empowering. Even if somebody just like tells a story that's really sad and it just sounds like, oh, okay, that's a bit depressing. <laughs> you kind of it, it makes you feel better to know that somebody else is going through that, and clearly they're overcoming it because otherwise they wouldn't be on a stage performing it. I was going to ask, um, so what are some of your favourite poets? Like who do you, 
see as your inspirations when it comes to poetry? That's a tough one. <laughs> like, um, who were the first kind of poets that you saw and you're like, oh, yeah, that makes me want to get on stage or that makes me want to continue writing? Yeah, to be honest, Omar Musa. Oh, okay. He was the first spoken word poet that I ever saw. And that was at a time I was 14 and I was looking for other people who performed poetry around me, but there was none. And I found the Australian Poetry Slam online and I saw his performance and I was like, this is kind of what I can see myself doing. There's not the boundaries of hip hop because I thought I was going to be a rapper at one stage. Like I, but then I couldn't stick to that, to the beat. And that's what I struggled with. So I was like, this just gives me the freedom. Um, so Omar Musa is a big one. As far as Australian poets go, it's um, Alia Gabres and Luca Lesson have always been ones that I've kind of looked to. And perhaps it's because I saw their stuff as well in my early days and saw parts of me in them or them in me. Is there a way of maintaining, you know, an authenticity of sorts? Um, how do you find that or how do you maintain it? Hmm. I think for me personally, allowing myself to have time alone. I get a lot of my energy from from being by myself. So when I have that, it's my time to also reflect. And again, I find that poetry is a way that I can do that. So it kind of goes full circle. So my poetry allows me to remain authentic because I'm constantly looking back at what I've said and what I've thought. And then I'm then putting that into other forms of expression. You grew up in Adelaide. Mm -hmm. What was that like? I love Adelaide. Uh, when I was younger, it was particularly in the area that I grew up with. It wasn't, um, it was, it was, I don't even know what to say about it. It was very, it wasn't multicultural. So it was very white. It was, <laughs> it was very white. Yeah. How did that make you feel? When I was younger, I didn't know any better. I came here when I was three. So there wasn't much else, but it, it obviously makes you feel very different, makes you stand out. Um, and then, yeah, like even though. Yeah, even though I was definitely like a acceptably black, especially um, that was noticeable like later on in high school when like more kids from um, other parts of Africa started coming in and then people would like be saying the things to me like, oh, you're not even black, you know, you're just tanned. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, is, are you trying to make me feel better? Are you trying to make me feel worse? I don't know what you're saying right now. So yeah, it was really interesting. I personally didn't get too much overt bullying. Um, and when I did, it was mainly about being Muslim actually. But I did have, uh, I do know people that were, um, that were physically hurt um, for, for that kind of thing. People were beat up, is what I'm trying to say, <laughs> for being black. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty tough to see that and to know that. What was it like, I guess, trying to navigate identity through all of that in the backdrop? Mm. I don't know. I think, I think for me, my dad always kind of let us know that you know this is this is what's going on remember that you're black remember that you're muslim and remember the implications that this can have and you know there are always i was always in two minds about that because i'm like i'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing that you're saying this right now but it was a form of protection and it meant that i was always kind of aware of that so it made it at times it was hard and i have a, a there's a poem that kind of reflects that in terms of like um appearance and things like that um the rest of my i guess it, then when I was 14, this is a bit choppy, but when I was 14, we started like meeting up with kids outside of school and we found like, we found Africans, we found an African community and 
that was amazing because suddenly it was like we were in this place where we could be whatever we wanted to be because everybody was black here. We never had to prove if we were black or not because being black meant, you know, clicking your fingers and being like, yo, what's up and stuff like that. And it's, you know, that, what does that even mean? That's African-American, you know? And so, um, yeah, it was, it was much easier once we found more black people. So I guess it was, it was very difficult trying to navigate identity because we had to be whatever people thought we were. We were trapped in imaginations. Were they like, was that like a safety? Did you find a safe haven in that sense? In when we found the Africans, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and even especially when your when your father talked about knowing who you are and what you are, was that a sense of like a safety blanket? Actually, no. I really resented that when I was younger. Why? Because it was just like, why are you trying to make me different? I don't have to be. Why do I always have to pull out that race card? You know, why does it always have to be about that? Um, because that was what it, what was heard around me. You know, if there was ever a time that I felt like something was happening because I was black or because I was Muslim or for whatever reason, I would just need to just, I'd need to suck it up because that's, you don't talk about that because otherwise you're bringing attention to your skin color. You're bringing attention to something that people are already shunning in so many different ways, you know? When did that change? It's really hard to tell for me. I've reflected on it so much, but I can't see a flip point and I think that's because a lot of things were happening at home so it was like there was a huge amount of time when I wasn't going out like it was literally school work home and then when I came out of that it was like a it was like a different world it was like I could just see things differently I'm not actually sure no good story with that one <laughs> and so when you talk about growing up in a predominantly Anglo-Saxon society that has been hostile to others alongside your dad talking about remembering who you are how do you, as someone of the diaspora growing up, how do you connect with your roots? This is such a stretch question, sorry. But how do you connect with that, particularly because you left when you were so young? Now, I I definitely, like, I connect with it in a very healthy way. I love it. And I try to really incorporate parts of that and my culture and everything into my life. I've spent a lot of time trying to learn more about my history and my background and my dad's stories and everything else. Um, and we went back to Ethiopia one time. We haven't been able to go back to Eritrea. When I was younger, though, it was, it was. I mean, I was in two minds about it. There were times when I loved it because I'd love our music, you know, and I'd, I'd like being around my cousins and stuff. But it just really contributed to the isolation from the rest of Australia so I was just like what does this mean to me like Eritrea doesn't mean anything to me um, none of this means anything to me it's just barriers for me getting by in life so yeah it wasn't it was hard to connect with all of those things because I didn't know anything different so maybe had I been here when I was a bit older like my siblings and I, I may have been able to remember what it was like to have you know been normal at one point but this is just this is what I was and I just wanted to blend in at that time so. do you have any regrets in, in the sense of um, like a lot of times growing up, especially like even me, neglecting culture and, and, and then later thinking, oh, I wish I did this when I was younger. And <laughs> I guess, have you ever had any regrets like that? No, I, I haven't actually. Because I think that all of these kind of contribute to me being as passionate about it now because it's something that I've actually had to go back and search for in a way. So I, I actually really appreciate everything that happened. What's it like searching back for it now? It can be really hard. Like when we were in Ethiopia, that was like 
total cultural clash um and then also even language like i i just completely lost confidence in myself there in but not just in learning languages and everything because i couldn't pick up the language because i couldn't communicate with people and i feel like there are times when i'm like oh it would have been cool if i had picked up that picked up language then but at the same time i wouldn't be as passionate about it now so and so following from that you know you talk about finding home and finding yourself um how do you imagine finding that part of yourself that you have you, you feel like you're searching for mm. to be honest like i've come to a point where i'm i don't i don't know if there is a home and i think that's okay because i really think that create space to create whatever home that you want um and for me that's very empowering so now i i am searching for a lot of kind of what's what i've not had like in terms of my culture and everything like that uh, that i feel like i've missed out on but not in the sense to um to to find a home just to create something i think ethiopia was a big slap in the face because i realized oh my goodness i don't fit in there it's not like a place that i can go back to or anything like that um and yeah, I kind of realized that whatever I want here, whatever I want to see, whatever kind of hope I want, I have to create it. And so that's what I'm kind of intent on doing now. What do you mean by there not being a home anywhere? Oh, I I don't know. You we're talking about a place where you feel you can always go back to and feel accepted and there's going to be issues. I feel like there's going to be something anywhere I go whether it's because in Ethiopia I'm a Westerner, you know, or I'm not even Ethiopian, so it's like I'm Eritrean. Um, if it's Eritrea, I'm diaspora now, you know. There's so many people there who've lived through this past 20 years of a completely different regime. I can't I can't relate to that in any way. In Australia, I'm Muslim and I'm black. Like, you know what I mean? It's going to be a while before that's considered a norm in any way. And as long as I'm considered abnormal, uh, the, is, that, is that ever really going to be home? You know what I mean? And that's not to say Australia is not home. Obviously, the, the physical space, it is. But in terms of creating the, the community, the surrounding that I want that would make, that would draw me back every time, that's something that, yeah, I've got to create that myself. And that's what I'm doing with the work that I do. What does, how does that reality make you feel, I guess? It hit me pretty hard at first. But now I, it's just, it's a fact. Like, yeah. it's just the way that it is. It's the way that the world is. And there's, there are things that we can do to change that if we want to. And so having the platforms uh, that you have, do you feel any pressure or any expectations placed upon you? And I know that hopefully there will be more people out there, you know, um, young, you know, Muslim black women out there who will look at you and, you know, we will see more of that. But for the time being, do you ever feel pressure to perform or perform certain narratives? Mm. Yeah, at times I do. There are times when, there are times when like I'll be going on to talk about art, right? And I've really, I've been careful about choosing the title artist in this past year and just being like, that's, that's what I am. Like, I'm not a spokesperson for the Muslim community. I'm not a spokesperson for this or an organization or anything. But there are times when I'll be there to talk about my art and then the focus will want to be on my background. And I'm like, well, it's like, 
my story is that I, I came here when I was three, like I grew up here, but, but then it would just be like, okay, so like, you're, was your dad a refugee? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, my dad was a refugee. That's kind of common knowledge. And it's like, okay. And then it's just like, okay, so what happened when you were in school? And it'll be really delving into that. And I'm like, so this, that happened and it was really basic. And that can be said in one or two lines. And what I want to focus on is where I'm at now and what we're doing now. But it's always going to be that um, wanting to tell that same narrative of like going through going through that hardship when you're young and then coming out of it and now you don't focus on self-pity but you focus outwardly and that's because that's the narrative that we all want to see you know or not that we all but like as in the white Australia wants to see people who experienced crap and then turned it into good which is not bad but it's just I sometimes I I just want to talk about that I just want to talk about this project that we're working on but it has to be about everything else a lot of people of colors stories are marked through tragedy so when you talk about, you know, the overcoming the hurdles, and, and by the way, this tragedy can be uh, expressed differently, but mm-hmm. in this context, overcoming the societal hurdles and now becoming um, prominent, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you speak about not trying to be pigeonholed into that narrative. Is there a way, f- how, how have you navigated that? How have I navigated that? To be honest, like, I don't know if I've, I think I've just gone with it, gone with the, like, yeah. And I've I've now, before interviews, I will tell them what I want to focus on is, like, is the art, something along those lines. Um, but apart from that, being really honest. And one of the other first things that I say that I try to get across is I was not a refugee. Like, just really make that clear because I don't have that same narrative that they're looking for in that sense. Um, and just, I guess, kind of brush over that. And, even, and when they go back to where I always bring it back to where... Where I am, where I'm at now, I find that that's the best way. Just kind of show them that I want to keep on moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if there's any particular, particular method. What, what? I guess, what's it like having to have that narrative pushed onto you? Do you ever like? I just, just, I just want to be Manal, the poet, the writer. Mm. Now. The reason that I have less of a problem with it now than I did probably a year ago when I was kind of really understanding what all of this was and what was happening and it, it was really infuriating at that time. Now I've now I've started to, um, and perhaps that's also why I haven't found it as difficult now even when I'm pushed back into it, is that I see that if I, I'm working for, I'm working for, I like to think that I'm working in a way that will appeal to young kids of colour who kind of wanna, who want to move forward, and so when that narrative is presented, for providing that I, I have a say in like how how much they 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 pull the poor Manal card, you know, um, I think that that actually relates to a lot of young kids that feel like they are kind of going through something that they can't come out of, and so now I don't mind so much. I've kind of put a bit of that politics aside, even though I know it's still like it's still very necessary. I'm still very conscious of it. But I'm like, what is the, the greater good that can come from this? And for me, it's relating to those young people that are going to look at that and being like, okay, yeah, I went through that and I can come out of it in the same way. It's it's a really boring, monotonous story, particularly for us because we, we hear it all the time and we know it and it's pushed upon us. And but I can see the good that's coming out of it, which is why I kind of just, it turns into one of my poems pretty much. You know, you just tell that same story again, unfortunately. Talking so. about one of your poems, you said you'd <laughs> thankfully read something for us. Mm. So what are you going to be reading? So I forgot um, I forgot my book, but oh. that's okay because I can mem- I've memorized a few. Awesome. But which one 
And here's another thing is that I noticed that, you know how like, just going back to that last question, the thing is that, and I can kind of see sometimes in my poetry, it does really present that narrative of like that whole, oh, crap, 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 yeah, like I made it kind of thing. <laughs> and so I think that it's like people just really like emphasize on that. I think for me, like the the only issue that I have with it is that, because that's, that's a part of our stories, you know, those things aren't ever, those things aren't false. It's just that they're not what create us. But I think that when it's like in something, like for example, with the book where it's just amongst a bunch of other stories and it shows different aspects of you, that's what's lacking in the media mm. is showing those, those different aspects of us as opposed, instead of just that, that single story. So I guess, do you feel like, particularly your chapbook allows you to explore a number of parts of yourself opposed to being pigeonholed in this 500 word article about Manel, this unfortunate child of refugees who fought adversity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think it does. And I think that, you know, I remember one of the reactions was, I didn't, I thought your book would be a lot more political than that. And I was like, bro, it's political as, 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 it's, as it could be, because there's so much, there's so much in there that is political, but there's so much in there that's just that free expression about different topics as well and that's what we need is to be able to and that's why I self-published as well because I wanted full creative control and I wanted to have that to, for it to be an expression of me. What poem will you be um, reading or reciting to us? Um, I'll be doing a poem. And also why, we, why are you picking particularly this poem? Yeah I'm picking this poem because it's where I'm at at the moment in terms of how I'm feeling kind of about life so yeah and it's one of the the newest newest poems in my book you just made it um yeah okay i miss the simplicity of positivity dancing once elated me until every stage my toes tapped to seemed to decree deeper darker pages this Rage ringing relentlessly, I couldn't balance the beauty and bereft. I couldn't work out the steps tripping on my pirouettes, though no regrets. Now I let revelry replace my destructive mindset, so can we just dance? Like leaves fallen on the road, sweeping swiftly down streets, round corners to new episodes, can we speak through our movement like a private code? Reviving lost languages, we, light and latent, listen like learning is life's love, we could salsa to the whistling wind, only soil beneath the soles of our steady steps, serene, but not sedated, content, but not complacent, forgiving ferociously, but cautiously, won't you forgive me, for I am bound to step on your toes, to let emotions flow and treat you terribly when overwhelmed with woes, and we both know how it goes, we might have to dance slow. Somber, clinging closely to memories of cool caress from those we let go, praying we let them know that we let love show shades of hope and not just shadows. As the sky does beautiful things above the ocean, we could dance toward the sunlight, toes wet with warm waves moving effortlessly, and when we're heavy, we can cry crystal tears to sweet songs sung by bright birds on those dismal days we'll dance until the pain fades, until the rain drops dripping drop on dry terrain and the barren becomes fertile again. Though towers may always tower over us and greatness may always be waiting over the next cusp, it may remain something that we just cannot harness, can we dance regardless? 
with the backdrop of vivid visions of victory can we fall victim to adventure doubting our doubts until they're too doubtful to doubt us fostering long forgotten feelings of freedom manifest in our queendom where our anthems are peace prayer and poetry so can we thank you so much for that manel no worries and so millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For our listeners out there, how can they keep in touch with you and your work? So I have a public Facebook page. It's just Manal Yunus. And I have a website, ManalYunusPoetry.com. So you can go on there and it's got all the information. Yeah, thank you so much again. Um, and yes, check out Manel's public um, social media channels. And, you know, where can they get your book? You can buy that online at, at my book, website. What's the, what's the chapbook called, I should say? The book is called Reap. Reap. Tony Abbott was really never a deeply popular figure among the electorate. Yes. Tony Abbott faced some hostility of his own. And really, the reason why his prime ministership has crumbled is because he lost the support of the electorate and ultimately the governing Liberal. Uh, this is not an easy so, day uh, for many people in this building. Leadership changes are never easy for our country. The, the prime minister's not going to lose. He's going to win. The, the Prime Minister's not going to lose, he's going to win. Uh, my pledge today is to make this change as easy as I can. Now we're going into our segment, The Bin. In the bin, where we throw... Some stuff in the garbage bin. Some of the stories that we thought maybe were a bit off. Some of the pe- things people said during the week that we didn't quite like. Uh, my nomination goes to Southwest Airlines. It's American airline, serv- uh, plane service, whatever whatever people call it. Um, uh, so why? So this Muslim woman named Hakima Abdullah Ask to switch seats, which isn't the most outrageous request. It's actually quite common. The airline has open seating policy, so this is no way a stretch. After making that request, Mrs. Abdullah was taken off the flight. The reason given was the flight attendant's lack of comfort. She just wasn't very comfortable. This was on Saturday. The following day, Southwest Airline were added again. This time, the discomfort came from speaking Arabic. Khaldun Mursumi, a senior at the University of Berkeley, ended a call with Inshallah, which means God willing in Arabic. The passenger thought he said Shahid, which means martyr in Arabic. I don't know about you, Amina, I just don't think those words sound any way similar. No, 
No, they don't. <laughs> they don't even. They don't even end with the same letters in Arabic or English. Yeah, I know. I know. Like it's just. Uh, so after that happened, he was taken off the flight. Was questioned by the FBI for things he did not do. He was just ending a call from someone saying "Inshallah," which is a very common said thing that Muslims say. And South Southwest Airlines, um, you're in the bin. Yes, the bin. And this is not even the second. There have been countless, countless times they've been Islamophobic and racist um, towards people that might be speaking Arabic and who look Muslim, however, and whatever you think that is. Um, And I'm not in the States, but there's a boycott movement happening on social media right now. And while I'm joining them in spirit. So Southwest Airline, I would never even take you, even if I was in the States. Goodbye. And you're in the bin again. So for me, this week, I'm binning Channel 9 and 60 Minutes for their entire kidnapping operation, parading as a humanitarian child recovery rescue, and thinking that they can bypass another country's laws and get away with it cleanly, possibly for the sake of ratings. Now, not only did the operation further estrange familial relations, the children are caught in the crossfire. Due to the sheer carelessness, a brazen characteristic of white and Western privilege, it seems. And Sally Faulkner, who is a Brisbane mother, is also sitting in jail with these Channel 9 people. And I feel like they have just dragged innocent parties into this mess. You know, whoever came up with that idea, I don't know how this idea came into implementation, but I can't believe no one said this is a bad idea. Now, to put this in perspective, the journalism team may be doing their job. Fair enough. But I'm not sure that job includes kidnapping operations. And there are plenty of journalism teams that head to the Middle East, for instance, to cover stories, important ones as well. But would it be acceptable if they engaged in warfare? I don't think people would tolerate such a thing. I don't think it would even be encouraged by the network for the sake and due to the vulnerability of the journalists in a volatile situation. And considering that the same cautionary measures were not in place for this instance, it is highly absurd at best and accomplished absolutely nothing. Everyone is in jail. I mean, the Australian team at least is in jail. The kids are in limbo and both sides are now estranged. I like, mean, further estranged. This is like a senior, like 60 minutes senior producers and the, the host of the show. And you just wonder, where was the thinking process? Where was... Like, we've been doing this for a while. Maybe this isn't a good idea. Are we manufacturing a story in any way possible? Should we just stop? I have no idea what they're doing. I mean, clearly, they didn't have the thinking facilities. I think to them, <laughs> I think to them, they really thought, you know, they really thought that they could get away with it because one, Australian passport. I mean, I understand. Australia has one of the strongest passports in the world. You don't need a lot of visas. But just because of all of that, you think that you are better or you think you are doing a humanitarian mission? I mean, let's let's deconstruct what this humanitarian thing is. Like, you can battle for custody for kids, that's fine. But actually jumping over and kidnapping them is a completely different issue. Obviously, people are going to detain you for kidnapping. That looks terrible. I mean, it'll be great for ratings if it happened, but it would still be terrible. <laughs> so, Amina, where are they going? They're going to the bin. <laughs> uh, and and lastly, and I don't think least, um, we're a bit we're a week off on this because we had a break last week. But I thought I could not rest, I could not leave this without talking about it. Carl Stefanovic and Lisa Wilkinson on their show were talking about the Logies, 
and apparently they weren't happy with the nominations. You know, Carl, my friend, thinks Lisa didn't win because of her complexion. I'm just going to play the clip. You, 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 you make your decision. Here's the clip. Let me know what you think. Should they go to the bin? And as I campaigned last year yes. around this time, where is Lisa Wilkinson's Agreed. gold logie? You agree. Oh, it's not Where's a joke. Well, Where's no, Lisa's gold logie? We keep talking no, no. about women shattering ceilings and creating yeah, yeah. history. She's done in the magazine think, world, done in TV. I think it's very clear. Lisa's too white. Is that it? That's it. I got a spray tan and everything. <laughs> Still didn't you know? make it. There you what go. Can you do? Logie's controversy. <laughs> <laughs> and see, all right, you, you listen to that, right? Think about it. I'm thinking about it. Amina, I don't know. I think there's only one place where this should be going. To the tan room. <laughs> <laughs> to the tanning salon. Uh, oh, this clearly didn't get enough tan. I know. Like, it, <laughs> it's just about the complexion, really. Just because, you know, the first time two uh, people of colour were nominated for the gold Logie, uh, obviously it's because they they weren't white, you know. They're just trying to tick diversity quotas, aren't they? But anyway, um, Channel 9, um, Lisa, Lisa Wilkinson, Carl Sevenovich, you know where you're going. In the bin. I've been in all rap this year at the awards. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I love hip hop. Obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay. Hold on a second. I got another call. Wait a minute. No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and their name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 you can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Yeah, I got on my overalls. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside. You're with Namilla on White Noise. And right now, let's welcome our first guest uh, to help us cut through the white noise, founder, producer and presenter of weekly podcast Race Card, Ahmed Youssef. Welcome to Triple R. Uh, thanks for, for, for letting me on. <laughs> <laughs> of course I was going to. Now, this sounds like a bit of a, an obvious question, but for the uninitiated, tell us what is the Race Card about? Well, like, um, so race, so we started at, uh, I think it was around August. Uh, we, you know, so we started the, the, I guess, the pitching process around June, July, speaking to people at Sin, and we kind of like thought about because because a long time like there's not been the discussion about race, politics, and current affairs with by people of color, um, talking about those complex issues that they face, particularly in Australia. We hear all the media coming out of the US, um, the UK and, and even Canada, but not much discussion in 
in Australia mm. and particularly about broadcasting as well. And that's a huge issue because when we look on television, when we listen to radio, um, when we look at the paper, who is telling the stories, who has the authority to tell stories. And that's something that I looked at and people that I was working with, um, uh, like Amina uh, and Arunti some, and, and Zach and people on the team we were thinking, uh, initially it was me and Amina who were, and, and Tanin um, who were working on the show and we we're like, how are we going to go about it? There's, it's been, it's changed um, a bit from, I guess, the beginning. We were kind of more like a, like a talk, three of us talking about what's been going on in the week. Now, I guess it's transitioned into to be kind of like more heavily produced stuff. We, we have an interview segment at the start with someone. We um, in, we introduced this new segment last week called In the Bin, uh, where we threw a few people in the bin, you know, like the Daily, Te- the Daily Telegraph. You uh, know. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they need to be thrown in the bin pretty much. Uh, and we, we have this other segment, which I'm pretty proud of. I'm, I'm trying to, I guess, work on more. It's, it's like a featured story. So we talk to a few people, we, we talk about an issue. So, for example, a few weeks ago, we did a story on international students being exploited in the workplace. And everyone remembers the 7-Eleven kind of um, expose done by the ABC and, and, and Fairfax. Yeah. And I thought, so, like, people know that's happening there, but do they know it's happening widespread? Mm-mm. So we spoke to a few people. They talked about their experiences. And that's the kind of thing that we're trying to do going forward, some more kind of storytelling aspect trying to make like because we everyone listens to podcasts and they listen to like radio lab and they listen to yeah. this american life yes. and, and, and etc serial, serial and, yeah. and and like are there many podcasts like that that talk about stories from a perspective that isn't white and yeah and i think uh you know an australian perspective as well because often when i was really trying to connect with people's stories and experiences it was like a british caribbean or uh say african-american or african diaspora somewhere else in the world they were the kind of the stories that i was coming across but an australian context of race was really difficult to find and you know with the race card i mean here you are um doing a show about race that's being presented in a nation that doesn't like to talk about race. So what did you anticipate the response would be when you set up the race card? I don't think anyone was going to listen. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, like uh, we started, so we did, we did initially the show on, uh, for two seasons uh, on CNFM, Mm. uh, 90.7. And like, like, honestly, I don't know how many people are listening. Well, you've got a huge following though. Oh yeah, but that's grown over time. And I feel like we've got a more religious following on on the podcast. And I think that's where I've tried to focus more of my energy on trying to like, so so we were doing the live show, but then editing it and making it sound much more, I guess, <laughs> clearer for the for the for the podcast, and now we've since uh, particularly do the podcast and and make it for a podcast opposed to making it for radio. Sure, and sure. like I was having but this the content though is still very much there. Oh yeah, um, in terms of the issue that you talk about, and you know, I guess in some ways, in terms of an audience, it was ready made. You know, you had people of color in Australia who got right on the race card um, as a show and also as a podcast. But I'm wondering if there's been any revelations in terms of who listens to your podcast, or any emails perhaps from an appreciate you know appreciative listener. Who only wants to be known as P. Dutton or something. (laughs) Are you surprised at who tunes in and who gets in contact about your your podcast? 
Well, like uh, most of the time when we've when we've spoken to people, uh, like a lot of the time it's been young people of colour um, messaging. And I remember um, there was um, this film filmmaker um, who has a YouTube channel who who came in and talked to who sent a message um, and, and wrote us a review, which was very nice. And like that that um, I, and that was um, a young person of colour, and and I. Like I don't know if mm. we have many white listeners, um, yeah. and I know I know I, I've got friends. I've you know I've got my white friends, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, like right? Yeah, one of them every you know like I have to have token. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so when I when I want to talk to them, uh, they're they're pretty much uh, responsive to the show. They like the show, but I don't know if we've gotten as big to know if we have this huge demographic. And like I hear on Twitter every now and then we get a message from maybe some some journalist we, we got a, strangely we got a follow from Tom Ballard and we kind of uh, oh, and we kind of dragged him we kind of dragged him on the last show we put him in the bin because he because he wrote an, uh, so, yeah. so he wrote this article on the Saturday paper about how he went to a um, a refugee some seeker detention center when he was drunk um, having a laugh, um, trying to find material for a show, so that that we kind of like, why are you doing that, mate? Um, yeah. And I know you. He, he wrote about the article. The premise is him having white guilt for doing that. So you went there to to kind of like profit from the stories of refugee refugees and asylum seekers. Um, you went out when you were drunk, and then you were like, I'm, which I have, is a total uh, lack of respect. I know. And 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 then yeah. and then he's then he writes an article which he gets paid for. About yeah, how he's wow. guilty. So he profits from it, from the yeah, the suffering of others. Uh, I mean, you know, it, being able to do the podcast that you do, um, you have to have a direct insight, which you do. So I want to ask you, you know, you're examining many aspects uh, and perspectives of race and racism. What's your experience of being, you know, an accomplished young dark-skinned man in 2016 in Australia? Uh, well, like, I guess, like, if you know, people talk about like their racial awakenings and things like that, mm. it can get really cheesy. But, um, like, I remember when I was, I think, like, I was in high school and I went to this very, like, I'm gonna call it white school. Well, it was, yeah, people that were going there were white passing, but they predominantly felt white. Mm. So, I'm gonna say white school. And I was one of the few, you know, like black people at the school. In my class, there was probably three of us, and it was kind of like I was, I was there, and I was, I was like the quote-unquote atypical black person. So it was like that's a hard thing, isn't it? Yeah. You feel like you're the token yeah, every and, now and then yeah. in certain spaces. Exactly, and and kind of like the way they perceive blackness was like through this prism of sporting excellence and this prism of kind of like musical excellence as well. And that's very much the African-American story. Mm. So that was, and, and also it's a very kind of narrow story as well of, of blackness in America or elsewhere. And I was like, it was, it was kind of weird. They, they expected me to play basketball very well, to rap. And I know the amount of people who ask me if I sing, dear Lord, if they heard me, yeah. oh my God. The only thing I can do is probably talk on radio. And, <laughs> um, and, and uh, that was kind of like <laughs> jarring because they'd, they'd say like, Ahmed, you're not really black. And <sighs> Ahmed, uh, you're not, I'm, I'm blacker than you. And this, this guy's like pasty white. Um, and like, that was like a, it was. It made me look back at my own identity and think, 
then what am I? And and then that was like like a troubling time, especially when you're in high school trying mm. to, I guess, like navigate your yourself and forgetting about navigating um, uh, adolescence, but also navigating a racial identity yeah. and what that means and what that means to be in a space that is predominantly white, that is um, predominantly like um, trying to, to tokenize you in that sense. And so from there, I, I got, when I got into journalism, I was pretty much doing sports, mm. doing a lot of soccer writing, doing a lot of soccer reporting. Mm. And the aspect of doing anything other than that was alien. Like I wasn't thinking about doing politics or news or current affairs or anything like that. Mm. And then I guess just like going going through that path of like being being tokenized, being racialized, kind of like in a sense made me political. Yeah, and made me it's, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because you internalize these feelings of feeling weird when people kind of other you but then you don't you know you're you're not empowered to speak up especially when you're young definitely yeah like it takes a long time doesn't it to have um the conviction and the strength to be able to say you know what what you just said is actually really shit and i still uh, have trouble today yeah like i just got a haircut and this guy um that i work with on some other radio stuff uh was like oh cool hair and he's like touching my hair and it's like I know that's wrong I know that's bad I know that's that's like a microaggression and I know that's like this thing where like like I do a radio show on race I should be able to point it out but like you're in this situation where you're with a group of white people and they'll be like why are you overacting yeah and it's just you like, have to really pick and choose your moments yeah and, and it's so difficult because you're always navigating about what to say and how to say it and you're always thinking about someone else's feelings and... And you also don't want to necessarily always be the educator. You just want to go about living your life and doing definitely. your thing without having to constantly give historical, you know, context to why what a person said is wrong and, um, you know, calling them on their comments. And I guess through doing Race Card, I mean, and I'm talking specifically in terms of... Uh, the broader white Australia. What what's what do you think is the understanding of what racism is? Like, I don't think there's a very much an understanding about what racism is in what racism is in Australia and and what 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 it actually does and how it is done. I think people have this idea of what racism is. What racism is is this: you are prejudiced against, you dislike it's really one, overt, one group, or, 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 or yeah, it's just, it's it's not necessarily like. There's no idea of like a systemic issue. There's no. It's it's very individualized. Um, mm. And I remember I was uh, I was talking to who was it the one of the one of the people altogether now, and I was talking to her um, about kind of like what what, what is structural racism. By the way, altogether now is a organization about racism, right? Mm. Run by this white woman and who I was talking to. And she was like, oh, I don't know about, you know, we got people, we, maybe you could talk to a lawyer about interstate racism or systemic racism. We only deal with interpersonal racism. And I'm like, but you're all a racism organisation. You know what I mean? And it's this thing where, like, why don't you know about, in, like, why don't you know about structural racism? Why don't you talk about that? Why mm-hmm. isn't that a dialogue that you're having? Because um, you are an organisation, therefore you are an institution. Yeah. You know I mean? And again, this institution is run by white people talking about racism and... They're bored, I, yeah. That's the very 
problematic nature, I think, of so-called diverse organisations or multicultural organisations is that, you know, in order for it to really um, kind of... achieve its objectives it it can't be with someone that's on the outer with those experiences like you kind of have to be and we were talking about this on uh, off air that you've got to be um on the inside looking out not on the outside looking in because to be able to understand just the deep impacts of yeah microaggressions the daily sort of onslaught of weird offhand comments and looks and what have you i mean that's so much to take on isn't it oh definitely and it's just this kind of thing where Maybe you have to understand, like, maybe sometimes you've got to take a step back mm-hmm. and what that looks like and what that means. And, you know, it's difficult. Like, you have to take, you have to forget about your ego for that. Like, you know what I mean? And it's like... You have to relinquish power. Exactly. You have to relinquish power. And I think that's pe- that that's jarring for people. And that's, like, you know, like, that makes people feel uncomfortable. But is that... But do they have to do that? Yes. And... Do people have to start feeling uncomfortable more? Yeah, mm. they do. And that's the only thing, that's the only way things start to change. Yeah, because I find through, uh, you know, having discussions around race with people that don't have to experience it as a person of colour, I mean, you know, it's like, unless it's very overt actions or words, uh, like using the N word or, you know, wearing a KKK outfit, you know, people will go, yeah, that's that's really terrible. Like, you know, that's no one should have to suffer at the hands of that kind of stuff. But then the little things, like when you're pinpointed specifically within a big group of people, so when you're asked where you're from or complimented on your English, people, that is racist. If you're not going to say it to a white person, don't say it to a person of colour. Exactly. Like, I, went, I was at the soccer yesterday um, and this is pretty much why I kind of like I'm not interested in doing soccer writing and 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 reporting in that sense I was at the soccer and this guy is by the way this guy is a coach for um some youth teams in in Victoria he's in Victorian state football all right and he was talking about this one black player and he was like are these dark-skinned kids okay you know what I mean it's like it's just that that kind of like it's it's just like things like that and they'll be like why why can't you say dark-skinned kid yeah. And I'm like, oh no, he didn't even say dark skin. He said, this dark kid's okay. And it's just yeah, like... wow. And it's just like... And I'm, the thing is, if you were to call him on that, he, he would deny that it was, like, you know... In the same conversation, kind. they were talking about political correctness. Let's not be political correct. But what's, what's his political correctness got mad? Which is kind of... That term's just a loophole to be racist. Definitely. It's just kind of say... Which, it's the stifle conversation. And like I was talking before... You know, sometimes you've got to be uncomfortable and sometimes you've got to make mistakes and mm. that's fine to make mistakes. But, like, yeah, be, be kind of, I guess... Um, Don't dismiss, deny yeah. and derail another person's rea- lived reality, I think. Oh, is, yeah, at the heart of it. I mean, and, you know, it's so, you know, like 2016 here in Australia, my goodness, did that start with a bang. There was blackface galore that happened, you know, with the Serena Williams fans uh, and then there was that party in, in Ballarat where people did blackface, um, you know, and it's just trying to explain to people about why blackface is wrong and gollywogs as well. Like, even in my hood, Mopo, what are you doing? Mini ponds, let's step it up. There's just, like, gift shops with gollywogs everywhere. And trying to explain that to people, because there's a real fondness, I think, in Australia with uh, the attachment to gollywogs. 
But they, they. I mean, you know, if just, just Google. Yeah, it's kind of like, like I feel like it's it's weird. Like in Australia, like there are some things that are like there's some things in Australia that you would never see in other places, mm. and it's kind of thing because like. Like so dialogue. true. We wouldn't have these discussions in America or the UK. And that's not to say that places like the UK and America aren't racist Ooh, and there there aren't yeah. issues there. But, like, mm. I feel like these are very basic conversations that, like, you'd never in America, like, I don't think you'd have the article like there was in the Daily Telegraph about talking about, like, um, invasion and saying, like, you shouldn't say invaded, you should say discovered. Like, that wouldn't... Like, yeah, they, they wouldn't be, like, this press... Like, they'd probably try to sit, they'd try to still use that terminology, mm. but they wouldn't make an article, a front page called Whitewashed when people talk about invasion. Mm. That would never... I don't think that would happen in in, in, um, in America. There'd be other things that, that, that would happen and this other kind of collective, like... Um, amnesia about how they got there. Yeah, but the cultural smudging yeah, of it all. Mm. But they would never have that kind of dialogue. That, but that, that would happen in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Racecardpodcast.com is uh, the place you need to go to uh, sign up to uh, listen to the Race Card, which is an excellent podcast that comes out weekly. Yeah. Usually it drops on Tuesdays. Tuesdays. Yeah. So, um, and you'll hear from a great array of guests and, and just hear insights that you're not actually not going to hear all that often across the majority of Australia's media landscape. So I heartily recommend you get onto uh, the Race Card podcast and broadcaster, producer and co-host of the race card. Uh, Yusuf has uh, joined us today on I, I would White just, Noise. I just want to give a shout-out to some of the people that couldn't come today. Uh, Amina Ziad, Arunti Lakshmi um, and... Uh, I'm forgetting Zach's last name, but <laughs> Zach, Zach Ahmed, Zach Ahmed, um, and Jaspreet Sonu. They all contribute so much to the show, and I wouldn't be able to do it without them. Well, you all do an amazing job, so thank you thank so you. much. And uh, where you've picked a tune for us to listen to, I should give an explicit language warning on this track, by the way, people. But yeah. Kendrick Lamar, why have you chosen this track? I uh, like Kendrick Lamar, all right. And like a lot of people say, like, oh, Kendrick Lamar is so generic. But like, I like, I like the sentiment of. Like despite everything that's happening, it's a very mature statement. But despite everything that's going on, we're gonna be all right. And it, like it's it's very heartfelt. Like I feel like people, some people miss the message in like, particularly like Kendrick Lamar's music. It's funny because Kendrick Lamar has a huge white following, and his yeah. music is not at all for white people. Well, how was that performance at the Grammys? Yeah. Damn, did yeah. that just uh, shake yeah. up the system a little bit? Let's hear from Kenrick yeah. Lamar now. This is All Right and uh, a language warning on this track here on Triple R. This is White Noise. All oh, my life I has to fight, nigga. All oh, my life I hard times like, yeah. Bad trips like, yeah. That's our show for this week. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Remember, you can uh, find us on Twitter um, at RaceCardPod, on Facebook, RaceCardShow, uh, Facebook.com forward slash RaceCardShow, and also find our website, RaceCardPodcast.com, and our t- Tumblr page, RaceCardPodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, and you know, you can subscribe on iTunes and ACAST by searching RaceCard. And maybe, you know, send put out a review or rate us. And maybe you'll be read on the show. I mean, uh, 
where can they find you on social media? You can find me on the interwebs at Amina Ziard, A-M-E-N-A-Z-I-A-R-D. Um, hopefully, my Twitter handle will not change. But right now, that's where you can find me. And you can find me at Ahmed Yusuf 10, the number 10. And this is me saying goodbye. And thank you so much for listening. It was so nice talking at you. And maybe we can talk with you one day. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ready? Yeah, yeah.